Welcome to Resensitizing with Chelsea Hart. I have my friend Adela here. Say your say your last name for everyone. Adela Kochav Moadav. Ooh, 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 ooh. I love that. Say it one more time. Adela Kochav Moadav. Oh, cool. Lebanese, right? Yeah, so Lebanese and Jewish. Lebanese and Jewish. But okay, so what is the root of those? You have, is it two last names? I technically have four. I'm Adela Kochav Moadav Fayana Cohen, but. Oh my God. <laughs> I have two. <laughs> Well, okay, so okay, so tell me the meanings of these things. It's so beautiful. Thank you. So I'm I'm a weird one in that my family is from Syria and Lebanon, but okay. they were Jewish. So they ended up moving to Mexico of all places, where I was born, and then I got to grow up in the lovely United States. So um Kochav, my first last name, is Hebrew for star, and it's transliterated into Spanish. So it's spelled with a J. So people are like Adela Kajab, Adela Kojab. It's like Kochav because I was born for greatness. Oh, I was born to be a star. Yes, no, I, I really fell short of that one. But um, no. yeah, and then the second one, Moadab, is Arabic. Um, as I understand, it means star scholar. Kochav Moadab, but um, wow. it's unclear what the meaning is. And then I have Fayena and Cohen. Those are just two additional names we tack on. And Cohen, if I understand, historically were in the temple. With very special, with uh, correct me. Okay, so in the days of the temple, the Cohens were priests. Yes, we are the priestly sect. Yeah, yeah. Star in the temple, priest. in the days of the temple, in the days of the temple, the special priestly priestly sect. Yeah, well, it's it's not even only in the days of the temple. People who are <gasps> Cohens, I know, they pass down <gasps> that they are Cohens to their children. And when the Messiah comes, we shall rise and be the priests again. <laughs> so, yeah. Very important person women, over though. here. Not the women. No, no, no. The, you the heard men, it my, here my first. My brother will be a priest. I, I'm just going to sit there and be like, ooh, I take whatever identity my husband has. How crazy is that? Ah, really? what a time. Yeah. That's so interesting, though. Like, I thought, I thought Judaism was matrilineal. It's matrilineal for Judaism, but for your sect, it goes by the father. Okay, so you have to marry a Cohen. Uh, I'd love to, but no, alas, I am dating someone who is not a Cohen. My children will not be priests. Oh, the shame. But yeah, so we'll see how it goes. I'm so upset now. <laughs> I'm so upset now. Yeah, I, I know, it's it all out. I've ever wanted. Ugh. Yeah, see, you have a special job when Mashiach comes. Yeah, yeah, I'm waiting every day, counting the minutes. Wait, so what, what sect is your person now? Um, I'm pretty sure he's Israel, which is just the common people. Just Samaritan commoner. The people. The people. Oh my goodness. Well, how have you, what, what have you been up to recently? Uh, what have I been up to recently? So I finished my first year of law school. I'm interning for the New York Supreme Court. It's cool. <gasps> okay. And um, in their mediation office because okay. we don't like conflict. We okay. like mediation. Yes. And, <laughs> and um, I have a podcast. It's called American-ish. We've been recording for that. Yes. And hopefully I'll be traveling with my grandparents. Um, I'm actually leaving in three days or so. Exciting. Oh, I'm so glad I caught you. Yeah, yeah, this is so, great. There's one interesting thing I think people should know about you that I met you. So we met at Rudy's. I've been sprung out of jail party. Yep. And uh, you spoke and the heavens opened. And <laughs> you spoke and the angels sang. And I was like, Adela. So the story I remember, the thing that just like made me obsessed with you was your story about how you got anti-Semitism included in legislation. So tell us about that. Cause I just, it's such an interesting story because so many people misunderstand the Jewish people as like only a religion, you yeah. know, and it really cuts short on a lot of the ways that Jews can talk about their experiences. So tell us about that. What did you do? What's the legislation? Tell us a story. How did you do it? 100%. So yeah, thank you. I sued NYU for anti-Semitism and my lawsuit ended up changing 
a law on a national level. Um, it's a very long story, but when I was a student at NYU, it's like everything suddenly turned to the Jewish community, specifically Israel-Palestine. But it wasn't in terms of the politics of, you know, Israeli politics, Palestinian people politics. It became a dangerous environment for Jewish students. Mm. So we had typical resolutions against Israel, as you do on student governments. But um, it ended up escalating to flag burnings, assault, and battery against Jewish students. Mm. And I was meeting with administrators for months, telling them that this was rising, that there was a problem with anti-Semitism in the school. And they kept telling me I was overreacting. And um, after the assault, battery, and flag burning, where our flag was not only burned, but torn to shreds and hung from trees and lampposts here in New York City, um, I spoke to administrators again, and instead of taking action, they gave an award to the group that burned it. And it made me take a step back and think about, well, what are my options? What are the paths? And there's yep. something called Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which um, is the discrimination laws in the United States for academic institutions. Mm -hmm. And if you fall under a protected category, the school has an obligation not only to stop discrimination and prevent it from happening, mm -hmm. but once it does happen, to take steps from keeping it from happening again, yeah. which is great. Um, but religion is not a protected category. Mm. So um, had a French flag been burned at NYU and students started chanting out with the French, that would have fallen under Title VI easily. But because it was the Jewish flag, and I am a Jewish student, I'm not Israeli, I didn't have a case against the school. But um, the more I started thinking about, you know, the way that Israel functions for Jewish people, where people see it as a political issue, and we see it as an identity issue, it's the equivalent of, you know, saying that you're boycotting a girl because she supports BLM when her identity is black. It could be a political cause, and yes, there's black people who don't support BLM, but if you're not working with a black person because they support BLM, we know to call that racism. Yeah. So why is it that it's different when it's Judaism? And if an LGBTQ flag was burned at NYU, I doubt the school would give an award to the group that burned it. Yeah. And if you want to take all politics, all identity out of it, if you had two fraternities and one of them assaulted a member of the other and burned their flag, I know for a fact they wouldn't be able to mm. recruit in the spring. Mm. So why is it that the only flag you could burn is mine? Mm. So I spoke to lawyers and I asked if I had a case against the school and they told me straight up no. They mm. said the law doesn't cover Judaism. But after I sent them my materials, they said I had the strongest case that they had seen because you have discrimination, university knowledge of it, more discrimination, more university knowledge. And assaults, like Assault, there was battery. flag burning, yeah. university knowledge, yeah, yeah. and then an award. Yeah, because I, th yeah. I think I think one of the I think one of the most troublesome things that bothers me around leftist dialogue around uh, the whole uh, Israel and Palestine situation is that leftists think that because they feel like they don't hate Jews, they're immune to anti-Semitic dogma, and that's that that right there. Like you literally are a Jewish person and saying like, listen, I'm not because I. I know you, like, I know you will, like, like, it's so, it's so dehumanizing that they think a Jewish person is incapable of, like, deconstructing Israel's problems or, 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 or just criticizing a government. Yeah. Like, they, they baby you, they infantilize you, like, you're making it, you're exaggerating. And you're saying, like, you're saying, like, listen, I want dialogue on this campus, you know, we're young people, but smashing up Jewish students is it the way. And mm -hmm. it's terrifying how that becomes accepted. It's, it's terrifying because when we use language of inclusivity, but then inclusivity also has a litmus test along with it. Mm. And suddenly if you're Jewish, 
you have all these additional questions being mm. asked. And your loyalty. Your loyalty. Do you Anti-Semitic trope. Yeah. <laughs> so you see me who are I'm not a US citizen I don't have a green card I'm a Syrian Lebanese Mexican Jew you're re- a Mexican citizen I'm a Mexican citizen dude I'm not American I've been living here for 20 years I'm not American but then when suddenly they see my Zionism they're like oh there we go we got another like you know right wing white girl and it's like no how about you listen to what I have yeah. to say and again you've known me forever I'm very happy to criticize the Israeli government yeah 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 so we've done levels. it We've, we've done, done it. it. We have done it. We've done it. We just sit there just like, God, oh, I hate gosh, Netanyahu. Oh, yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. At the same time. But then when you get to campus, suddenly like I became the face. It's, it's of very- Israeli colonialism. And it's like, what are you talking it's about? It's so here? homogenous. And I think, I think one of the most disheartening things is how many people don't realize that Israelis, like there's a lot of Israelis who are very sick of the cycle of right-wing ideology, like who are there- like protesting, like protesting the government, protesting, you know, all these things. I mean, it's, is it, is it a trickle of a change? Sure. But they're fucking like, they're like, it's so homogenous yeah. and so anti-Semitic I mean, to the first time. Yeah. It, it, it's crazy. Cause like the first time I met a left-leaning Israeli, I asked my mom, I'm like, is she anti-Semitic? And I was like, no, actually a lot of Israelis, about half of them don't follow the right. They're actually very left-leaning. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. So it's crazy like to think like maybe people who would hate America and suddenly take Trump's America and put that on every single other American when half of Americans were sitting there like, mm. this is not what we want. And of course, you know, you just, so like with this, with, with Israeli, uh, sorry, Knesset, mm-hmm. it's a parliamentary system. Parliamentary. So it's, it's like, like not that I agree with everything that's ever been voted into Israeli parliament, but it doesn't always necessarily represent its citizens in the way that American politics does. Yeah, I, well, I, I think it does a better job in that in American politics, the party in power is the party in power, Yeah, right? Like when you have a right-leaning government, you have a right government. When you have a democratic president, you have a democratic government. And like, of course we have checks and balances, but in Israel, if the president can't keep their coalition, their coalition breaks apart. Oh yeah. So even when you have a right-leaning or a left-leaning government, the rest of the parliament very much has a say and mm. they can literally disband that government in a second. I think they're going into their sixth election this month. Like, Wait, what? Yeah, again? It fell apart again, again. So it's- I was so it's hopeful. crazy, yeah, no. So it's, it's a whole entire mess, but going back to what happened at NYU, it was just this feeling of being ignored. And, when, and gaslit, and like gaslit. you're saying, like there are Jewish students, like listen, conflict or whatever aside like there's jewish students who are being beaten up and that's the problem like with a lot of this dialogue is no no for me like what's so disheartening is like people do not see that there are folks that are using this as a proxy to smash up the whole jewish people exactly and i can tell you for a fact when nyu jewish students saw their flag burning an overwhelming majority of them felt afraid Oh yeah, of course. Felt afraid. So we can disconnect it from the religion if you'd like, but end of the day, that flag is a symbol of our shared ancestry. Yeah. And that's what I had to prove in my lawsuit. Uh-huh. I actually couldn't use the word anti-Semitism in my lawsuit uh-huh. because anti-Semitism wasn't considered protected. Wow. So when I sent the case to my lawyers, they said, look, you don't have a case legally, but this is the strongest one we've seen. If you're ready to move forward with this, this could change things. Yeah. So you, did you... So you got it included as like an ethnic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's the other thing. Like a lot of people have such a short-sighted view of what Judaism or Jewishness is, not realizing that it is, you know, a mostly closed religion that's mm-hmm. passed ethnically, passed yeah. through families. And it, it, 
Yeah, that that. Well, if I can speak shortly on that, right? Is Judaism an ethno religion? Let me break this down. People ask me where I'm from, and I say I'm from Mexico, and they say, "Well, you don't look Mexican," and I say, "Well, I'm actually from Syria and Lebanon," and they say, "You don't look Syrian or Lebanese," and I say, "Oh, you caught me. I'm Jewish." Why? Because that's the only thing that's been a constant throughout my life. Nationality is a social construct. Borders are、uh-huh. all these things that are moving and changing. And you could be one thing and the next another thing. I'm Mexican because I was born there. My grandparents are all Lebanese or Syrian,、mm. right? And yeah, and they they know Arabic and they know Part Arabic. Your, yeah, they speak yeah. Arabic at home, right? My my culture is Arab culture.、Mm. End of the day, but my religion is Jewish religion. So my culture and your traditions my are, and my Jewish traditions are Jewish traditions. Being、exactly. a Cohen, being a Cohen, celebrity over here. Priestly sect. But the crazy thing is that when people see Judaism as a religion, it's not just if you practice Judaism, you are Jewish, right? Judaism has a whole process. There is conversion,、it's, yeah. But end of the day, the way that Judaism has been for centuries is a peoplehood. We、mm. are a peoplehood. We are the Jewish people. We're not necessarily a Jewish religion. If you keep Shabbat, that doesn't make you Jewish.、Mm. If you don't keep Shabbat, that doesn't make you not Jewish.、Mm. Because there's so much more to Judaism. It's not like a faith that you buy into or not. It's part of who you are. Adela Kolb, everyone. <laughs> oh my God. So how? Speaking of Judaism, I've seen a lot of Jews speaking up about the Supreme Court decision.、Yes. And so, tell me, so you, as someone who is very in touch with your identity and very in touch with, you know, it's very precious your traditions. So, how, you know, with you know the sanctity of life being so important in Judaism, how did that make you feel? And how are you, as an activist, going to? Go forward in this time. Like what you, what as you as a Jewish activist who knows how sacred the life of mother is are in Judaism. What, what do you have a battle plan? Do you have something going forward that you're thinking about? That's a great question. Yeah, I, I think the way I see things, you know, being a Jewish person, right? That was in Mexico and before that in Syria, in Lebanon. The one thing you don't want is the government involved in your life.、Mm. And when I say that I'm pro a small government, people think that means conservative. It doesn't. It means that the government shouldn't have a say in what you're doing. Because tell us, okay, so、mm-hmm. you say that, but tell people how your family ended up in Mexico, because I think that's an important part、yeah. of the puzzle. Well, in the Middle East, I don't know how familiar you are with Jewish communities in the Middle East, but the answer should be not very, because there really aren't any left. Right? Jewish people were. Um, at times, kicked out of the Middle East. At times, not allowed to leave the Middle the East. The Nazis were active in the Middle East Na- as well. Nazis were active in the Middle East. For my family specifically, we didn't have any World War II involvement. Actually, during World War II, my family was fine. They were in Lebanon. They were thriving. But then, suddenly, after Israel was created as a state, you saw again the anti-Semitism. Where you know, my grandpa wasn't necessarily a Zionist. He was just a Jewish guy living in Lebanon. Yeah. But next thing you know, being Jewish made you different,、mm. and being different made you a target.、Mm. So, regardless of your policies. It became almost impossible to be openly Jewish in Syria and、mm. Lebanon. So Syrian and Jew- Syrian Jewish Lebanese families started migrating.、Mm. Um, my family ended up in Mexico because、yeah. um, on my dad's side they left early on, which is great.、Mm. They made it to Mexico directly. My mom's side left in the seventies,、mm. and they actually went through Canada、mm. to get to Mexico、mm. with Iranian passports. Even though none of us are Iranian, don't ask how we got that. And、um, my mom happened to be born in passing in Canada, and all these different things. So now my mom's Canadian, but no one else in my family is. <laughs> it's it's super convoluted and crazy. But we ended up in Mexico,、yeah. and one of the reasons why the Jewish community loves Mexico is because the government doesn't play a large role in your life. Yeah. So like I don't know if you were seeing like in California, for example, they wanted to. At one point, make a push to ban circumcision because it was child mutilation. 
So as a Jewish person, I don't want the government having a say on whether or not you can do things. Yeah. So when it comes to abortion, I think, you know, Judaism actually permits abortion, especially if the life of the mother it's is It's actually in instructed in the Torah. It's instructed. If the life of the mother is in danger, you must abort because you have to protect existing life over potential life. Yeah. And also there's mm -hmm. also... Um, uh, in one text, there is a recipe to induce an abortion. Induce. There is. And um, at the same time, Judaism, because they value the sanctity of life, they recognize that abortions aren't just a happy-go-lucky thing. They recognize it's something really difficult, really hard. It's a tough decision. Mm. But they recognize that the life of the mother is important. So as a Jewish person in the United States, you do not want the government dictating what you can and cannot do. Mm. You don't want that. If an abortion is something that you need to do, that you want to do, if it's something that in your life factors in, that that's fully your prerogative. Mm. And as a Jewish person, if the life of the mother is in danger, you have to. It's mandated mm. to save that life. Yeah. Um, life above all. Life above all. Because, you know, the crazy thing is that when people say it's that they're pro-life, they forget that it's not only about the potential life, it's also about the life of the people who currently yeah. exist. Yeah. And you can't jeopardize one over the other. And even when it comes to let's say if the life of the mother is not in danger, up to the first trimester in Judaism, it's okay to abort. Mm. It's something that like, you know, if you can go through the commentators, I could pull out a source sheet if you'd like. And they say that at that point, it's considered mere water, which mm. is not a good term. But again, it recognizes that it's never an easy decision. And I think like that's, that's the issue that I see with right now, abortion activism in the United States is that they forget the gravity of it. Yeah. Right. You should never be an advocate for abortion. You should be an advocate for the right to abortion. Mm. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. It's such, there's such an unhealthy dialogue on the left unhealthy. about abortion. They have like this like frolicking Delilah image, like yeah. la, 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 sprinkling babies yeah, everywhere. Sprinkling. Oh. oh my God. Like so See, now I hear that you said sprinkling, but in my head I heard spring cleaning and I'm like, oh, every season? Oh no. That's what a period is. Yeah, lol. <laughs> we got those. God. So, so tell me. So, mm -hmm. this is this is an this is an interesting piece of your identity because you know we've talked a lot. And we actually we actually cross over a lot politically, but for your family, there's this tragedy of isolation when you know your family kept their Arab links. Like they're very proud of you know, the marriage of their Judaism with the, Le because they're indigenous to Lebanon, because the, the, the Torah takes place, you know, between, you know, uh, what is now Gaza and all the way into Lebanon. Like that, that is, that is the Torah. That's biblical Israel. That's, 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 that's the Torah. That's the, that's the biblical Judea, whatever anybody wants to call it, but that. So their very like soul, their essence is tied to the land that they were forced out of. And they were very proud of their Arabness. So how did your family, when they were forced out, how did they keep those very proud ties? Like, and also, uh, we'll get to this, but you can't roll your R's. I can't roll my R's now. So how does that work in Arabic and Spanish? Oh, I'll, I'll get to that in a yeah. minute. But um, yeah, so it's it's interesting because when it comes to, like, for example, my, my mom's side of the family, they're Lebanese. I don't know if you've met Lebanese people of any religion. Fairuz. They are proudly Lebanese. Yes. Because Lebanon is the Paris of the Middle East. Beirut was the Paris of the Middle yes. East. Yes. It's I've heard this. I've heard this many times. Culture. Yes. We, Lebanese people are super proud of their heritage. And that And non-Lebanese Arabs are actually very proud of Lebanon. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> but um, so when they got to Mexico, they kind of made their own Syrian Lebanese pocket. Ah. So you'll be driving through Mexico and you'll see 
all these like hookah lounges and things like that. Yes. And they're Jewish owned, which is hilarious. It's great because we're, we're Jewish Arabs. And then when I moved here to the States where, you know, the overwhelming majority of Jews are European, right? They're Ashkenaz Jews. That's when I realized like, oh my gosh, I'm different from everyone here. My foods are different. The language I speak with my grandparents are different. Like sometimes people will meet me and they're like, oh, you're Jewish. So like, do you speak Yiddish? And I'm like, I've never heard Yiddish in my life. That's not... That's not my language because that's like, you know, a, an Ashkenazi version, I guess. Well, like, he's Ashkenazi. He can oh, give you a spiel. Hi. <laughs> you can give me the Yiddish spiel. The spiel. We don't have that. My grandpa speaks Arabic. I show up with a short dress and he goes, I, which means like, <laughs> oh, an embarrassment, an embarrassment to yeah, the Arab community. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's funny, but um, there is a tension, especially like in my family, for example, my grandpa, he goes back to Lebanon every couple of years and he loves it. Mm. He really loves it. But for example, my, my great aunt on my mom's mom's side if you ask her she hates it when i use the term arab because she says they didn't want us so why do you claim them Ooh, so it's interesting there's I actually, so much pain there and there's this a, it's pain. the relation it's so i there's a lot of the, the dialogue particularly around mizrahi is, oh, is I, so can dense I, can i it, say something like that oh so i made a tiktok where i talked about when i are you on tiktok now i'm on tiktok why now. are we not mutuals oh my yeah. god because I just got there. Okay, I okay. just got there. Okay, we'll do it later. So I'm on TikTok now, and I uploaded a video where I talk about how I am an Arab Jew. By that I mean, I am a Jew, but my culture and my traditions That's so controversial in the Mizrahi circle. Oh my it's gosh. so controversial. Like, it wasn't even that, like, like, yes, I got a couple of comments from non-Jewish Arabs who are like, you are Jewish, you are not Arab. But the overwhelming majority of comments came from Mizrahi Jews being like, someone get this girl a history book. We are Mizrahi, we are not Arab. You do know Mizrahi means Eastern, right? As in yeah. the Middle East. Yeah. Mizrahi Jew means Middle Eastern Jew. Yeah. Mizrahim, Mizrahim was made uh, when uh, some of the waves of violence were bringing Eastern Jews to. Exactly. That, that's where the term exists. Yes. There was no there was no homogenized experience between Iranian Jews and Lebanese no. Jews. And especially like, for and example. So, like, and, and, and part of the Jewish story and what makes the Jewish people so beautiful is that diversity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. Mizrahim, like, yeah, okay. That's like an experience, but that's a series of experiences. And you're not the first Mizrahi, Mizrahi Jew that I've seen call yourself an Arab Jew because yeah. you know, you've know you kept that Arabic, you've kept that pride, that 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 marriage of Jewishness to Arabness. Your grandfather's very proud. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's so tragic to cast it off because of politics. Exactly. And, and I think like there's also different stages of ethnic cleansing, right? There's, there's a most blatant ethnic cleansing, which is what we saw in the Holocaust, right? Mm. That's where you see a race that you want to annihilate them. But there's also different kinds. There's, there's economic ethnic cleansing where you make it impossible to earn a living. There's a form of ethnic cleansing where you say, you are not like us. And you just like, you know, you have like the Iraqi yeah. Farhud. If you look at the Farhud, what happened in Iraq, it was essentially two days of like Jew beating. It was yeah. horrible. And they it was actually, look stores. it up. Al Farhud, uh, look up Nazi involvement in the Middle East because a lot of people don't realize the Nazis did not have their eyes set on Europe. They had their eyes set on every Jew everywhere. Every Jew and everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. And actually the King of Morocco, the King of Morocco gave the middle finger to the Nazis and is like, did. no, every Jew under my control is my citizen. And Morocco is actually a wonderful place for Jews, especially like, for example, during Passover, a ton of Jews go to Morocco because they're such a Jew-friendly country. They have yeah. full kosher for Passover mm-hmm. restaurants. It, it's really amazing what Morocco has done. It's one of the few countries they're where really doing Jews the work. don't feel yeah, that pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. But uh, g- going back to what we said, again, the, the experience, especially like not even of all Jews, but even this experience of Mizrahi Jews is not 
you know, homogenous. Exactly. At all. Because it's 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 a term that that came to pass because there were because of, you know, if you want to say Nazi involvement or, you know, a shift in a regime that suddenly mm. saw Jews as interlopers who were no longer citizens of the places like your family. Your family who had been there probably since the Bible. Uh, yeah, we, we have no idea since when. I mean, exactly, probably since funny. the fucking Bible. My grandpa never had a Lebanese passport. So when he had to leave Lebanon, he had to get an Iranian passport. Mm. They knew someone in the Iranian government who mm. was giving passports to Jews so they oh, can leave. No. And then they went through Canada. Okay. He got Canadian citizenship. Yeah. And then when he moved to Mexico, my grandpa's been living in Mexico for 46 years. No Mexican citizenship. That's hilarious to me, but it's it, that it, seems very Lebanese. Yeah, he's just it's, like he's just like. Yeah, and I asked him, I'm like, well, why don't you want to get a Mexican citizenship? He goes, I live here, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> why do I want? That? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. He goes, I live in Mexico. I'm like, okay, you're Mexican. He goes, like, I am Canadian. I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. Like end of the day, we're Jews, and where are we Jews yeah. from? The Middle East. So yeah, TikTok is very mad at me because I used the term Arab Jew. If you use the term Mizrahi, you're saying an Eastern Jew, which is a Middle Eastern Jew, which is what we are. I am a Middle Eastern Jew. I'm not gonna have to apologize for any of that. I yeah, know that they're gonna just, come after me again. I don't merit, care. It's it, and the way you talk about it too, like mm -hmm. it's just such a shame to cast again. Yeah. Your your family's so richly proud of their heritage in the Middle East and richly proud of you know their Judaism being married with Arabic, and it's just such a shame because of politics to just cast that off in one word. You know, yeah. So tell us about okay. So it's. I actually was, it's just, I, I remember seeing this on one of your posts, but I was telling someone, so Adela, my love, the love of my life, <laughs> cannot roll her R's and she yeah. speaks Spanish and Arabic. So I tell know. me how that goes. Give us a couple of anecdotes. Yeah, a couple of anecdotes. Come so on. <laughs> I can't roll my R's. It's um, a speech impediment if you speak Spanish. I know like here it's like a cute party trick. Like when you're like in America and you start like rolling your R's and you're like, ooh, look, I rolled my R's and like, uh. Yeah, no, in Mexico, I like I can't roll my R's. It's really a problem. And it's an insecurity I have when I'm public speaking, when I'm talking to my cousins. I have little cousins. In, in Mexico, we have like a, a nursery rhyme that where you just keep rolling your R's. Eric Onere Cigarro, Eric Onere Barril. I can't even say, I just go because I can't do it, which is so funny. So my little cousins who are like seven years old, all call me ferrocarril, which means like the, like a train almost like a locomotive because I can't pronounce that word, um, which is, it's really funny to me. And then, oh, I also posted that on TikTok and TikTok is like, it is a speech impediment. It's not a speech impediment. She's just practicing, you know, not, in, not enough. Someone put a spoon in her mouth. At one point, someone said, if she spent less time complaining about her speech impediment, maybe she would actually practice and change it. That's not how speech impediments work. That's not how it works. So, I went to speech therapy for years. Really? For, years. for went, your R's? For my R's. Since I was little in Mexico wow. and in the US, I went to speech therapy. I can't roll my R's. I love mm -hmm. this other world of speech impediments. Other world of speech impediments. You I guys don't it. even notice. I say I was born to live in the United States where no one can tell I have a speech impediment. And now whenever all my little cousins make fun of me and they start like making fun of my R speech impediment in I Spanish, love that. Kids are brutal. They're brutal. Kids are so They're brutal. so mean. Kids are horrible. Oh my gosh. Terrible time. Kids um, are so brutal. But meanwhile, they can't speak English because they're seven-year-old Mexican kids. So I'm like, okay, we can talk like this if you want. Like you'll make fun of my Spanish. I'll make fun of your English. And I don't care if you're seven. I don't care. You're being mean. And they have to learn it's a doggy dog world. And if you make fun of someone, they'll make fun of you. So maybe learn to talk first. <laughs> Seven-year-olds. Sorry. Anyway, my mom has a really heavy accent. It's really adorable. She can't say the word appropriate. 
She what did she say? Up, she goes, it's not appropriate to make fun of your mom. I'm like, it's not what mom? She goes, it's not appropriate to make fun of me. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's keep it there. <laughs> I love my mom. She's hilarious. You're so yeah. silly. <laughs> oh my fucking God. So, okay. So in Arabic, you also have to roll your R's. Yeah. You have to roll your R's, but not as much. I'm not fluent in Arabic. I can have conversational Arabic mm. conversation. I can read and write, which is great. Ooh, um, but that's a skill. Yeah. That's a whole thing. That's a whole thing. It took it's, me, it's very yeah. complex. I, very I was complex. like, I, I, I can read and write in Hindi, which is, um, like in Arabic, the, the characters change depending on where they are in the world, uh, yes. in the word, and how you decorate them with vowels and stuff. In Hindi, they don't. But it was it was really interesting going from like this symbolic language, trying to figure out. It's 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 so beautifully I mean, complex. I got lucky in that I already knew Hebrew. I knew how to speak, read, write, and everything Hebrew. I oh, it's to, an abjad as well. Yeah. So I, I went to Jewish school my entire life. So yes, it's different, but like a lot of things are the same. Like an aleph is an aleph, right? A ba is a bet. A, oh. Like gimel is, uh, they don't have a gimel. I guess they do. They have a rain, which is different. And I, I could talk about that. Yeah. Um, but um, like Adele is a Dalit, right? So they have all of their letters pretty much coincide. A mm. lot of their words coincide. So I got really lucky because I already knew half the letters. And then it was just a matter of learning how to write Arabic. I, again, because it it's an accursive. So it's it, like, in a, yeah. everything's connected, which is really fun. I, I really loved learning Arabic. Yeah. It was great. But they have a letter that I love that I haven't seen in any other alphabet Ooh. called Ren, which is Ren, which Ren. it makes like the which is great. There was an yeah. Arab comic that made a joke about that. And he asked his dad, uh, Dad, why do we go eyes? Like, it's because. We have been under the foot of the West for so long. We're just going, I, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. So there's an iron and there's a iron. I love all the layers in Arabic because they make sense to me. And even if you don't roll your eyes, you can always go, Israelis do it all the time. Like they go, I'm Israeli. Yeah. I can say that. I can't, yeah. I can say Israeli within like, you know, regular American yeah. R, but I can't roll my R for like, Israeli. yeah, you can yeah. do it. Yeah. See, look at that. <laughs> my Mexican card to you. <laughs> <laughs> God. Um, yeah, so I can't roll my R's and it's okay. It's it's one of like the, the fun things about me. Um, again, when I public speak, I just learned how to find words around it. So like my favorite is like, for example, pero, which means but, I can say that, right? That's like a soft R, I can do that. But like pero, that means dog. I can't say dog. So I just say wah wah, which literally means like woof woof. So I'm like, mira el wah wah, look at the woof woof. I sound like I'm seven, <laughs> but it's okay. I swear I'm an adult, I, I go to law school, I, I have a job. Look at the I'm, woof woof, pick on children. Woof, pick on children. <laughs> If there's anything to take away from this interview is it's okay to be mean to kids who are mean. Anyway. I know. Kids are so fucking brutal. Yeah. They yeah. have like, th I remember being a kid. I hated it. Yeah. being. Oh, I liked it because I was like very blissfully ignorant about the meanness of the world. Because you went to Jewish school. I went to Jewish school. So all my friends were Jewish. Yeah, we, we had like a couple of like mean girls, but not really mean girls. Yeah. Uh, one thing I love is, so my little sister, if you're listening to this, so she's blonde, right? And when she was little, they had like a group of girls called Blonde Squad and they were mean. And my sister decided one day she didn't want to be friends with the Blonde Squad. So even though she was blonde, she made it a point at recess. She sat down with the brunettes and she said, I don't want to be part of Blonde Squad because they're mean. Until this day, my sister's friends with brunettes. It's so funny. That's so sweet. But yeah, that's a, you know, speak truth to power. Little tiny activist. Little tiny blonde activist. Oh my Crazy. God. Crazy. God, the time, speaking of activism, the time and place we are in this country is harrowing. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, like, I, I'm not American and I'm still in the process of wanting to be American. And like, more and more people are like, why? 
why do you want to be here? But I feel like you're the person who would just step in and be like, listen, I feel like that's you. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you why. So um, you asked me, like, if I have a game plan, everyone always asks me, well, what do you do? Active yeah, business. because like this, yeah. you are very vocal about your Jewish very, values. Ooh, and this, vocal. yeah, and this being such a cornerstone part of the, like, not even just, not even just the right to abortion, but just in Judaism, protect life at all costs. Everything you do is to protect life. Yeah. And so- so the, and life as in an actual person, not the Ben Shapiro type. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd say easy breezy. The solution for me and what I see in America that I don't see in Mexico, I don't see in Syria, I don't see really anywhere. Um, I, I see it, you see it in other places, but in America, you have the power of participation. I say this all the time. Mm. If you are upset, you should participate. What does mm. that mean? It means like, let's say Supreme Court decision, horrible, but... You can protest the Supreme Court all you want. It doesn't change anything because now having gone to law school, I know how the court works. It doesn't matter what you do if you want to protest them, if you want to impeach a judge, it doesn't matter. It's not gonna overturn their decisions. They're not gonna overturn their decisions due to political pressure. That's just not how the court works. Mm. Who you should be mad at, what you should be protesting and what you should be out in the streets doing is protesting your elected leaders because every bill that's sitting they on their bring, hands. They've been sitting on their hands. And you know why? Because of their electability. They're afraid that Keep, if they bring yeah. a bill that the people elected yeah. them to bring, it might hurt their electability. Yeah. So whenever I see something, and also and also yeah. donors, and also donors, and donors it's actually, is this is part. a huge difference between America and other countries. I think yeah. in the UK, it's actually illegal to lobby politicians, and it's illegal for like medical companies to like swoon a doctor. Yeah. Oh. It's very very different in other countries, yeah, I mean, and it's clear in the way things operate. Yeah. It's funny because like, again, coming from Mexico, bribery is the way we all function. It's funny. My dad used to live here in the U.S., and when he would get pulled over, he would like you know like. Pull out, like <laughs> couple dollars <laughs> give them to the officer and he'd be like sir you are bribing an officer and it's like you know you're not allowed to I do that, that <laughs> my dad he did move back for a lot of reasons to mexico but he always joked that it was because the u.s had too many rules right um so it's funny how like when we look at mexico we say oh yeah everyone's corrupt all the politicians are corrupt they just take the money the highest money highest bidder in the u.s it's pretty much the same but i feel like you have they just put a pretty power. bow on it they put a pretty well bow. it's you a lot of the power. congressmen are white, so yeah. well, suddenly it's it's suddenly it's suddenly it's politics and white men do it. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. <laughs> if I was a U.S. citizen, I would run tomorrow. I would run tomorrow, and like, yes, you're not going to have the would. big. Oh, I know. I want would. to so badly. That's why I want to be. You're going to fucking do it. I'm going to. You're going to fucking do it. Platforms going to be immigration reform. It's going to be wonderful. Adela 2046. Look it up. It's going to be great. No, um, it's it's. I have a 30 year plan. I really do. I'm, <laughs> Again, You're I told so you. You're so driven. I hate I myself. It's gross. I have a color coded. She's planner. obsessive. Um, I am. I She's am. obsessive. I love she eats, sleeps, and dreams change every day. Every day. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's exhausting. But what I do want to say, like for everyone who is upset about the decision, for everyone who has been upset about decisions, and I'm sure that there's more coming. When you take to the streets, you don't protest the court. You lobby and protest your elected specific officials. people, specific people, specific senators, specific Congress people, specific the people who are in your district. Because the way I see it is, if they do throw it to the states, you have to do everything in your power to make sure your state stays the way that you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to other states that let's say don't have the power, if they're in the minority within the United States as a whole, that means that they'll be defeated in the Senate and in Congress. Mm. So it sucks. It's been thrown to the people because it's something that you know the court you know, overturning a decision, it's like a proactive move to go backwards. Mm. But at the same time, when you protest, if it was thrown to the people, take your power as people. You mm. know, in America, I feel like people baby themselves, they infantilize themselves, and they expect the government to just do all the work for them. There's legwork behind democracy. Democracy mm. only works if you do the legwork. Mm. 
if you go out there and vote, that's if you go I, out there and run. That, you can't just yeah. sit there and be like, oh, the court did something we do not yeah. like. Get out oh there. Oh my God. What are you doing? Yeah, that's what I found. I, in my, so like you found out about this TikTok shit. Mm. And oh my God, it's a horrible place. Oh God. No, so like, God, I wish, I wish like, people really looked up to my content and I wish there was a space to talk about abortion versus miscarriage and what goes into it and stuff. Cause I did like, I don't, I was having a manic episode on fucking TikTok because of all the bullying and stuff. And I did say the word miscarriage, but people don't realize like, like people do not realize the basic biology between a, uh, but between the, the different types of abortion. Right. So like my abortion is often called an induced miscarriage. Because that action of the contractions prematurely pushing out a baby is miscarrying. That's medically what it's called. Now, it's called a medical miscarriage, but oftentimes doctors can refer to it as we're, in, we're basically inducing a miscarriage. And I used that word, and it was wrong because, you know, it had an emotionality behind it that a lot of women, like, saw, and they, like, saw their pain in me. Mm-hmm. And I should have used a different word. It, it was the medical terminology for it, but it has an emotionality behind it. But now... Because I didn't even remember using it because I didn't I didn't use it maliciously. It's the medical term for it. It's the medical term for like that action. That's called miscarrying. Uh, but now, now I have everyone just saying I like people literally lip sync to me crying over my abortion. And I said, you have been lip synced lip syncing to the sound of me crying over my abortion. It's like, no, we're lip syncing to your lies. It was like, no, you're lip, like the fact is you think I'm lying about those tears. Like people don't fucking realize yeah. like, like a medical yeah. abortion, I ache for what people are gonna have to go through in this country. I was lucky that like my abusive ex, his family was still around it. So they also took care of me during my ordeal. They also like saw the fact that I had like a bucket to puke in as soon as the as soon as the vomit started. Like, mm-hmm. there is gonna be so many people. It's it literally. I thought I was dying. I thought something was going wrong. Like like chunks this big coming out, and I have fucking leftists who are bone dead stupid about what goes into a, an abortion. Gaslighting me in my comments. You're being dramatic. You're being dramatic. You're lying about what happened to you. You're, this isn't, this, you didn't have, this isn't what happened to you. I'm like, I made it, I made it, I had to make an instruction video on how to give yourself an abortion in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And I still have leftists who don't like me in my comments gaslighting me. That's, that's this issue with, I think, leftists. I think when you're a liberal, you have good values. When you're a leftist, you don't listen to reason. You think you're the expert in everything. And suddenly everyone else's experiences are invalidated. Yeah, leftist, the thing it's, is- It's so high and mighty. And especially on TikTok, like again, I've been on TikTok for three weeks. <laughs> and at first, like I wanted to respond to every comment and I ended up hopping on a work call that took about four hours. When I went back into my TikTok next thing, I know I have like, you know, like a hundred something comments. And I realized I can't reply to any of these. And the more I read through, the more it desensitized me to them. Mm-hmm. It, oh, you get numb. You get numb. Oh, yeah. You get numb and it's also like just seeing like like something as stupid as my speech impediment, right? People being like, it's not a speech impediment. It is a speech impediment. I had to get surgery so I could roll my R's and now I can roll it. It's a speech impediment. No, it's not. She just has to work harder. And this was like a battle in the comments, like mm-hmm. hundreds of comments. And mm-hmm. it's like, don't you have something better to do with your time? 
it, it, it was crazy. And I, I'm sorry that you had to go through everything that you went through. I'm sorry that you went through it. I'm sorry that the response has been so vile because it's been no so one vile. That. They've been it's, like literally men just like you're being dramatic while still hundreds of women and individuals in my comments saying like, no, this was my abortion experience too. Nobody yeah. ever told me that it would be. They told me it would be like cramping and so many people in the comments just like, yeah, I thought I was dying too. I thought I was dying too. This is going to be, I swear to Jesus fuck. This is going to be so a thousand times worse than anybody can fucking imagine because there will be women who probably die. There will be people who are queer and having to have an abortion with double whammy in their state now against their life. Like it's just, it's going to be so much worse. And I wish, I wish there was a space to talk about this on TikTok because so many people just do not understand the basic biology of abortions. People literally, I, it's been, it's been harrowing the amount of people who still feel the need to put me down over my abortion because I've had women who've had miscarriages, like telling me just like a miscarriage is more painful. It's like, no, they're just different. They're different. They're different. Yeah. You don't have to put me down for your miscarriage to matter. Yeah. You don't have to you don't have to demonize or belittle the excruciating physical event of my abortion in order for your miscarriage to be devastating. Well, I, one thing I wish leftists could listen to when it came to pro-life people is the pain. Because people who are pro-life recognize that an abortion is a big decision. They recognize that it's it has gravitas. It's mm -hmm. weighty. And on the left, for I feel not like, everyone, but for some people, yeah. For some people. And you know what's so interesting? I just, mm. I saw this woman, um, this pro-life woman, and I, I, having gone through what I went through with my abortion, I not only want abortion to be free and accessible, I want it to be like a spa. I want, like, I want people who have to have abortions to have a freaking five-star spa experience because it's absolutely fucking excruciating. And I think of some of these pro-life women who, like, you know, so basically abortion grief is a postpartum depression that nobody talk, nobody holds you for. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was just as pregnant. I had just as much morning sickness. I had all the physiological hormones that built up in the first mm -hmm. trimester, right? The only difference is, is that people think I should skip off into the sunset. And I think of how many, like now, dangerously and toxically pro-life women that there are. I wonder if we had destigmatized the emotions around abortion and if somebody had found them with love versus their environment. Because a lot of these women are the product of pro-life circles. So they have these natural this natural come down of hormones. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if somebody on the left had found them with love and taken their hand and said, you made the right decision, let's mm -hmm. just cry. You made the right decision, let's just cry. I wonder how many more mm -hmm. people would be pro-choice if we really talked about the weight of how, because I gotta tell you, like I've been called right wing because I said that I reacted to being pregnant. The only thing I want is I want mental health care to also be accessible, just as accessible as abortion. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I wonder some of these really toxic women who've had abortions who then obviously felt the natural come downs off those hormones. I wonder if they had been met with resources mm -hmm. and love and mm -hmm. tenderness and saying, you made the right decision. Let's just cry. Mm -hmm. You are whole. You are not a murderer. Like, I wonder how many more pro-choice there would be because this is this is what this is my problem with the pro 
choice dialogue is they talk about us like we're popping them out like nerds candy. What the fuck? My contractions went on for three days because they're induced. They're induced. So the medication just has to run its course through your body. Mine went on for three days well after the pregnancy was gone. It was so traumatic. So traumatic. And I'm lucky that, you know, when I had my abortion, I went to go live with a very supportive friend who just spoiled me rotten and took care of me and held, held me emotionally and just kept space for me. How many people had to go through that and go back into this toxic right-wing evangelical, uh, the, second, the second you're fertilized, you're linked to that baby for the rest of your life. I wonder how many of them were gaslit into these kinds of ideologies. That's, yeah. you know... And it's shame. It's it's shame, and it's also the it, audience. It's so it. Yeah. This is where the pro-choice dialogue falls down because they talk about people who've had abortions as if we should be frolicking into the sunset. I do not regret my abortion. I do not. I never could have had that man's kid, ever. But I think about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. that's. There's such a stigma around around the emotions or the hormones because nobody wants to talk about the fact that abortion is still just as just as much pregnancy as every other pregnancy people 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 remove that very feminine part of it that very that very like finding out you're pregnant like it's like for me like time stopped i was like you know? And I think everyone has had a scare, right? You know, I, when I was in college, I can't even tell you how many times I'd get the, you know, I'm late text mm. from a friend. Mm. Can you come with me to get a test? Mm. Like, even mm. just taking, like, people make it as if it's not an emotional event to even go to and a I pharmacy, think, I think buy a test, and take it. I think this is how, I think this is how the pro-life movement courts uh, pe- women, because I don't, I don't, I don't imagine any queers being, too many queers being conservative, uh, but like, I think this is how, I think this is how the pro-life movement courts mm-hmm. women who've had abortions because there is this after abortion come down. If you know, because let's face it, let's just, let's just talk about not everyone experiences pregnancy the same way. Mm-hmm. Some people like my, my grandmother, like her pregnancy was like easy peasy lemon squeezy. My mom almost died having me. Like she, like in the nineties, they wanted to ship her down to get a third trimester abortion because she was going to die. Like not everyone experiences pregnancy the same way. So not, not everyone who has an abortion reacts to abortion the same way. It's physiologically impossible for everyone to experience pregnancy the same way. And thus abortion care needs to be diverse and inclusive of those needs. It is not a cookie cutter experience. And to say it is, is inherently misogynistic as if everyone with a uterus has to have the same uterus. That's inherently misogynistic and robs anyone with a uterus of their human agency and individuality. Louder for the people in the What back. the fuck? What the fuck? Abortion care needs to be inclusive of every range of experience from, from the people who are like, oh, thank God, I had an abortion. I'm going to go to work tomorrow. Boop. You know, like from those people to like me, I was still very weak for a couple of weeks. I was still like, I couldn't really walk the next day. Abortion care needs to be inclusive of that. It needs to be tender to that. You cannot treat everyone the same way after they have an abortion because we don't treat everyone the same way when they're pregnant. You know what I mean? Like It's funny because what you're saying is just so intuitive, but I think that everything that's intuitive about anything, um, especially in the United States, is is pretty much gone, right? 
So I, I again, like I, you, but that's the problem with the dialogue around the pro-choice mm -hmm. movement. It's like being pro-choice means you understand the weight of the choice and to support, to be pro-choice is to support the fullness of that choice. Yeah. If you're pro-choice, you support the fullness of that choice and you hold that person and you cherish them and you say, I'm so proud of you. It was so hard. You're so strong. Part of abortion care needs to be that tenderness. It can't, we cannot keep talking about abortion as if it's just this cold, feelingless thing. For some people, abortion is the best thing that ever happened to them. And you know what? I'm so envious and I'm so proud of them for making their decision that was right for them. But for some of us, it was a long road to accept, you know, the pain. Mm -hmm. I don't regret my abortion, but I had to grieve it, mm -hmm. you know? Like, for me, I've always wanted to be a parent. Ever since I was a kid, I've I've been a baby since babysitter since I was twelve. I've always wanted kids. Always, I've always known I loved babies, and I always knew I loved kids. So finding out I was pregnant, like yeah. devastating, yeah. fucking devastating. There's where is that space in the pro-choice movement? Yeah. Where is that grief in the pro-choice movement? Pro-choice means supporting the fullness of the experiences of the choice. That is what pro-choice should be. Pro-choice isn't just like, yeah, party disco. It's just like, I will hold you in the fullness of how big this is for you. That should be the pro-choice movement. And I think, you know, if we change that dialogue into a variety of experiences, I think we're going to court a lot of people who feel alienated by such unhealthy dialogue. Yeah. I think, I think, I think, I really think it alienates a lot of people in that way yeah. is uh, just this flippant, frolicking, like, La -da 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 -da, I had an abortion. I'm going to go marry my Prince Charming. Like, I, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's what bothers me. And that's the thing that I've seen that's so toxic from so many leftists is like, I've been called right wing because I said, I've, I've been called, it's so strange. I've been called right wing because I said my abortion was very emotionally difficult. That shouldn't be revolutionary. It should not be a revolutionary concept. Well, I think that that also says a lot about um, family structure on the left. I think that right now leftists are also demonizing anyone who wants to be a mom. Like for example, again, I, I have a career. I want to be a working woman. I also one day want to be a mom mm. and that's my choice, right? One day I want to be a mom. Why? Because I think having a bunch of little Adelas would be wonderful for the world. It could be <laughs> actually great. We can greatly benefit it, especially yeah. if they're born here so they can run for office. <laughs> um, but um, when I talk about this, little politicians. Yeah, when, when I talk about this with my friends that are further, 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 further left, they see it as a sign of weakness where they say, well, why are you succumbing to you know basic generals for the woman? And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm always gonna be a working woman. I definitely the wanna work. The generals for a woman is the roles that she decides. Exactly. Yeah. And, and nowadays, like, again, like making the decision to even want to have a child is laughable in some circles. Mm. And I don't like that at all. I think it's a decision. People who don't wanna have kids, that's their prerogative and that's mm. fine. But people who do wanna have kids shouldn't suddenly be seen as less than or against yeah. the cause. It's so interesting that you bring that up. I have a friend who, woman of color, who went to India. So she went down south to India. And um, it was really fascinating because, you know, she, so she's a black woman. And, you know, what was so interesting about her experience in India is that by going to India, she then still realized that she's still, even though, like, the experience in the West are 
100% different across, you know, different demographics. Even with her vastly different experiences than other uh, racial demographics in this country, when she went to India, she realized she still had a Western lens on what femininity should be mm -hmm. because the West is very individualistic, whereas India, a lot of things are based around family. Mm -hmm. Family is a huge identity, and family structure is a huge part of identity. And so she's sitting in the South, and... Um, you know, her and these other individuals on this trip are like looking at this Indian woman like, oh my God, she wants to be a homekeeper. She wants to be this. And, you know, they're like, wow, that's so sad. She's really like, she's under the foot of men kind of thing. And then when she, um, when she actually like spoke with like a translator who translated with the woman, she's like, no, I really want to be a parent. I really want to be a stay at home mom. I really want to make a family. It's a like, it's such a yeah. huge part of identity. And it was then that she really realized like there's such a varying array of what empowers different people. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to put an, under the feminine umbrella, you know, a womanhood as broad as it can be, there is a varying array of experiences. I mean, in the West we have genderqueer women you know, there's a varying array of what empowers, you know, feminine people, you yeah. know. I mean, take a look at the Syrian Jewish community, right? I was the only girl in my AP calculus class. I was applying to all these schools. Most of my friends weren't. And, um, you know, if I used to think when I first got to college, I was like, wow, my community is so limiting and they don't empower women, which there's a lot of issues in the Syrian Jewish community, especially when it comes to women. I know. Yeah. And they're changing I know. We it. talked about it. We talked about it. And now there's an organization called Propel Network that empowers women to pursue careers, you know, joins them together yeah. with mentors who are also female in the Jewish community yeah. who have also studied certain things. It's great. It's changing. But if you told my friends from high school, you're going to go to college, you're going to build a career and you're going to work. A lot of them would say, well, why are you punishing me? Because mm -hmm. they never cared about school. All they wanted was to be mothers and be homemakers mm. and not in a way that was limited, not because they were told they couldn't be something else, but because that's what they've always wanted. Yeah. And I think that celebrating some choices while putting down others isn't right. Yeah. At the same time, like, you know, looking back, you look at my path, right? Like I went to NYU, I'm now in law school. Like mm. I, I had a very specific path yeah. and I'm still on my path and I have my 30 year yeah. plan and my color coded schedule and my planner and all of that. You're so extra. <laughs> I, I am. But when I talk to other women who don't want what I want, I'm not going to put them down for it. So when I say yeah. something like, oh, one day I want to have a family, that shouldn't make it seem like I'm somehow anti-feminist. Yeah. And I think, but I think also, I think it's, I think it's, I think it is a bit of a trauma response. Yeah. I think it is. It's most certainly a trauma response. I think it's yeah. most certainly a trauma response. I think, you know, you, me, anyone who's had a feminine experience, you know, fears men or has, or has like, you know, I flinch if a man comes up to me, like, like in my peripheral, I'm like, ah, like that's a trauma response. And mm -hmm. so like, in, I, I also think in those, you know, more traditional wishes, I think there does need to be a discussion about, you know, making sure that because in the West specifically, you know, that more traditional structure does come with a lot of pain and yeah. re repression just to, just to make sure those options for empowerment are, are available, available for people mm -hmm. who want to start mm -hmm. families or anything. Cause that also has to be discussed. And I think, I think why, because again, probably a lot of the people who are against these more traditional roles are probably people who have dealt with trauma from those kinds of structures because the structure, 
again, like, you know, these structures of oppression, so many of them rely on male power. Yeah. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting balance to reach between, you know, this casting off of the old, you know, cisgendered male power with also some people still, you know, being perfectly happy to have a more traditional, uh, you know, Western, I guess, structure. Yeah. And I mean, for me, like, I can't help wanting to have a family because my hormones, I'm going to TMI for a bit, have been off the fucking charts. I want to have a baby so badly and my body is telling me that. And like, I'm just like, like you know, when you I get know like you the mean. message, I know like, what you mean. oh, you're, you're fertile, you're fertile. Yeah, I fucking am. I want to have a baby right now, but I can't because I want to finish law school. Yeah. And it's all these like back and forth. But like when I talk to some friends- I want to have a baby more than anything. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My body's begging for a child. It's actually uh, 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 yeah. not an okay time. And but, that's also like uh, one thing I, I saw, oh God, in my comments, like you're romanticizing abortion. I'm like, no, I'm saying that- my abortion was one of the hardest decisions mm-hmm. of my life and it still eats me alive because I've always wanted to be a parent. I've always yeah. known I wanted to be a parent. But it should be under your own terms. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, and that's but that's like that's still a legitimate like thing to grieve. Yeah. A, a legitimate loss to, I don't I, it just some of the, so, I've seen abortion god, I've seen abortion care providers fucking gaslighting me about it. They should lose their license. They should lose their license. People were telling me, you're being dramatic. You're just literal abortion. Like, fuck off. It's so fucking toxic. Yeah. So toxic. Super, super toxic. Yeah. But outside of all of this, I know that TikTok is not a super friendly place. So do you want to tell us about some of the happy experiences you've had on TikTok of the support you've you seen know on what? TikTok? You know what? One of the biggest things that I saw on TikTok particularly. So, you know, o- over this drama, like some of my old tweets came out. And I used to be very, very deep in the evangelical right wing, like in this country, pre-Obama. No way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to be very like, like in... Uh, they find you in middle America in middle America. Part of, part of decompressing from the church in middle America is also having to give up your community, which is a huge, like literally casting off, you know, uh, reality as I understood it, the world was created by Yahweh. And I had to literally when I went to the UK, I had cast off the beliefs of my parents. I had cast off the beliefs of 21 years of my entire life. Everyone I ever knew and everyone I ever loved. I knew that when I left Alaska, I would no longer ever be able to talk to them the same way. And that's a huge loss. I mean, yes, it was a toxic environment. I'm still a person. And that became like my community bond, you know? And, um, so when I left that when I started decompressing the church, I started looking at church history and who is the whipping boy of the church history, but the Jewish people, that's right? Okay. And yeah, so that is where a lot of like, I was lucky in a way that when I decompressed from the church and when I started digging into the toxicity of the church, that that came up. And for me, that's how my anti-Semitism education happened. So when I went on TikTok and I got involved with all these other leftists, it was non-existent anybody knowing anything about placing Jews next to power and everything. But one of the most, one of the most fulfilling and beautiful things that I saw was like, I would talk about anti-Semitism on my lives a lot to the point that non-Jews came to my life would like ask me questions and there would be like Jews coming in like into the live and stuff. And we would like talk about like, what's an Orthodox Jew? What's a reformed Jew? What's this, you know? And that was one of the most fulfilling things because it was genuinely a, not only missing, but a deficit 
on the left, just an education about the marginality of Jews. Yeah, and I, I want to hop in on that. You know, when it comes to Jewish people, I think that we're at a point in the world, a point in time, where marginalized groups are speaking up for themselves. Mm. And that's amazing. And for some reason, that hasn't happened yet on the Jewish community, but it's starting, which mm. is great. You're starting to see Jewish activists. You're starting to see all this spring up. But at the end of the day, there's only 13 million Jews in the world. Yeah. There's very few of us. And so the people who yeah. run the people who run the freaking dialogue are anti-Semites. Are anti-Semites. The anti-Semites yeah. out, outnumber Jews by hundreds, hundreds to one. Like if every single Jew in the world, old to young, everything, followed an Instagram account, we wouldn't even have one third of the amount of followers as Leonardo DiCaprio. How bizarre is that? That's bizarre. And nobody realizes that either. Nobody realizes. And you know what's it. so? F you know what I realized? Nobody realizes how few Jews there are in the world because the role of Jews is inflated in every situation. In every situation. Every situation. Every situation. The role of Jews is inflated, and thus people have this inflated perception of how many mm -hmm. Jews there are. And yeah. it's actually so interesting. I've asked a number of times in my live streams, like, how many Jews do you think there are? Oh, Twenty million. Oh, thirty million. 13 million. 13 million. And if you count yeah. patrilineal Jews, it maybe goes up to 15 million. Yeah. Maybe. And if you count, like, let's say just like practicing Jews, that number goes further down. Like it's, it's mm. super low. Mm. So the crazy thing to me is like, again, like Jews, like we can all speak up, but if we don't have allies, unfortunately, then we're gone. We don't have a voice. So when I first started seeing you and how much you talk about anti-Semitism, especially in the circles that you're in, mm. I said, wow. That's an ally. It's scary. It's scary. It's I was, fucking scary. I was like, why does it, no offense. I was like, why do you care about us? Great, but why do you care? And it's because you have a broader understanding of the way things work. Yeah. You're nuanced. Yeah. You're nuanced and you get it. And, and also, but Judy, so anti-Semitism isn't just like, I'm gonna go slap off a keeper. No, like it's not just that. It's a perception of Jewish power. Mm -hmm. It's a perception of Jewish scheming. And that's what people don't realize when they just take out a word and put a new word in. Like, oh God, Adela, I, went, I don't know if I told you this. I once had a leftist come to my live stream and bold face ask me if Jeffrey Epstein was a member of Mossad. <laughs> and I was just like, and I just stared, I was, I was just like, yeah, don't you know he provided all the underage women that like, all did Mossad you, agents abused? Like, did you, like, did you just pick the one very rich, evil person who happens to be Jewish and try to link them to a random country in the Middle East. Is yep. that what you're really trying to do? Yep. That like, and, and you know what the worst part is? Mm. They said that, right? They said that. And one other person in the live stream recognized why it was anti-Semitic. Literally a live stream full of lefts who was just like, what was he? Tell us. Yeah. Like what the Jesus shit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like, wait, my favorite is uh, there's a guy outside of Washington Square Park. Um, he about three, four times a week is out there with the sign. And my favorite one that he has is Jews control the Internet. And the back says, Google it. And I'm like, <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> I just feel like if Jews control the world, they have the worst cover story ever. Yeah, because we did everybody a horrible job. Someone take away. Like, I feel our... like it's being genocided is a very expensive cover story. <laughs> Yeah. To cover up all your we're, earthly we're power. We're doing a really bad job. Someone, someone's got to talk to our PR team. If, if we're the ones controlling the world and controlling the, the terrible internet, PR team, so ooh, many genocides. Yeah, yeah. I would fire them. Yeah, yeah. I, but 
horrible. Yeah, so so many. Like, yeah. Not doing a good job. Like to, to our, our elders of Zion out there who are controlling the world, like do better. Yeah. Do better. Um, do better. It's it's crazy. Like the whole thing. Funding is, is short these days, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Isn't it for everyone? <laughs> but yeah, no. So a- a- anti-Semitism I've seen run rampant. It's very easy to recognize anti-Semitism on the right. Like when someone says something straight up, Nazi or something like that. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, that is anti-Semitism. But then when it comes from the left, just because everyone means well, I think it's a lack of education. I don't think that there's malice. I, I think there's a lack of anti-Semitism education, education like of mm-hmm. what anti-Semitism so does. If we can go back to my lawsuit, right? When I sued NYU for anti-Semitism, people are like, well, how much did you win? I never sued for money. I did not get a single penny at all. The mm. only thing I sued for, the only ask in my lawsuit yeah. was for NYU to change their policies because NYU currently had a discrimination policy in place that didn't include anti-Semitism. Mm. We have mandatory discrimination trainings, which are necessary and important for young people. Yeah, Anti-Semitism is not mentioned once. Mm. So the only thing I sued for was for NYU to include anti-Semitism as a form of discrimination. And they didn't. And, wow. Well, until your lawsuit, until your lawsuit, yeah. until my lawsuit, um, NYU settled and gave me everything I asked for. Wow! Everything I asked for was for them to change their policies, to define anti-Semitism, and to have a plan in place as of an, what to do when ethnic, you're confronted. Yeah, as yeah. an ethnic oppression. As an ethnic oppression, because the crazy thing when it comes to religion Cause, under cause Title Six, yeah, because yeah. even because even if you convert into Judaism, then all your kids will still be Jewish, and you're yeah. still considered ethnically Jewish. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like again, Judaism is Nazis don't differentiate. No, no. Unfortunately, we we were Jewish enough for everyone else, so it's time that we start protecting Judaism. Like, mm. you're not just like if you ask Nazis, they'll say a Jew is a Jew, mm. right? But then why is it when it comes to protections for minority classes, a Jew is not a Jew? You know what so I mean? So one, I have a theory about that in America, particularly mm-hmm. in America. My theory is in this country, you had the history of redlining. Mm-hmm. So for Ashkenazim or any white passing Sephardis or anything that were, were, you know, if you didn't know they were Jewish, they could pass for white, right? So my just musings about all of these systems is my theory is, you know, when Ashkenazim first came to the United States, they were f- uh, fleeing pre-Holocaust anti-Semitism, which was terrible. White supremacist pogroms, they were being murdered. Steven Spielberg actually came here because of that. Most of his family that stayed in Europe died. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually came here pre-Holocaust. His family was escaping uh, anti-Semitism that way. So when people came, Jewish renters were some of the only people that would rent to black folks, right? And then you had the implementation of literally drawing lines and saying no mortgages, no financial investment, absolute destitution in this area and absolute destitution. So it forced people out of those areas who could mm-hmm. leave. And then that... Like either these families stay and face absolute destitution or they leave and, and try and make a way somewhere else, you know. And I think that structurally made a chasm between the Jewish experience and other marginalized identities because a lot of people don't recognize that Jews are also black, Jews are also Asian, Jews are also Indian, uh, are, are South Asian, right? Yeah. And I yeah. think that that... that acts that came down I think just like correct me correct me that's just like for me I think that structurally moved the Jewish people away from their commonality with other marginalized people do you know yeah I think so too and I think it's also on part of Jewish people one thing I talk about a ton especially when I speak to younger people is that Jews became very comfortable in their own pockets 
because in terms of like their own like little communal mm. spaces, their own because bubbles. it's safe. Yes, like my friend, I've, mm. I made a video about my friend Avraham. Every time he's um, he wears the the great hats, great hats. Great if hat. you're Orthodox, Haredi Jew, and you wear so nice the big hat person so nice hats but my friend he's very 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 jewish looking and every time he leaves his little community he gets spat on he gets beat up he gets hurt every single time so so we stay in yeah and it's just safer and then jews who are out there in the world who are not openly orthodox things like that like take nyu for example a lot of jews will really just keep to the jewish community we keep to our own little enclaves our own little bubbles because, it's, because it's the most safe. proven safest way yeah. exactly 100 percent. why would you step out and that's the issue because like i said before there's so few it of creates us. a feedback loop of fear yeah exactly and also then like rudy said then nobody meets jews exactly nobody meets jews nobody knows who jews are exactly. from jews and if you're jewish you have a responsibility let me make this very clear there are so few of us that you have to get ready to when you meet people represent something bigger than yourself. We have mm. a concept in Judaism, Kiddush Hashem. It means like um, honoring the glory of God, right? Elevating mm. the glory of God. The way that you do a Kiddush Hashem is by acting as a Jewish person who is also a right and just person. Mm. When you are out there, you're an ambassador of our peoplehood because there's so few of us. Mm. So I got very ready. I spent some time in South Carolina. And for a lot of people, that was the first time they met a Jew, right? And I was ready to explain basic questions. Like, you know, I all these basic things, you, you forget that outside of like California, New York, Miami, Texas, people don't know what Jews are. Mm. So some people are like, oh, you know, I've never really met a Jew before. Or like even like, and right now that's very American centric. If you take a zoom out into the world, right? Latin America, people don't know that there's Mexican Jews, even who are people from People don't Mexico. know there are South, South American Jews. South American Jews. And there's Jews. so many for centuries now. For centuries, we, we've been there. Um, well, I mean, my family's been there last time, but there's a really large Jewish and community. And a strong, strong, Jewish strong, community. like melting pot of yeah. Jewish experience because of the Inquisition. Exactly. Yes. So when it comes to, you know, even people in Latin America who have never met a Jew, when you are Jewish and you're meeting someone for the first time, you have to be ready to walk them through it, which I know mm. is unfortunately a very strong responsibility. Mm. And I know, for example, like people of color go through this where they say like, it's emotional labor. Why should we have to do the work? And it's true. But unfortunately for Jews, there's so few of us that mm. if you don't do the work, that might be the only experience, yeah. the only interaction someone will have with yeah. a Jew. And yeah. for me, especially as a practicing Jew, I'm modern Orthodox. I went to yeshiva uh, from kindergarten mm-hmm. through high school. I know the traditions. I still keep kosher. Mm. So it's a lot more things to explain mm. and I'm ready to explain them. Not that I speak for all Jews. I'm not saying every Jew speaks for all Jews. That's definitely not true, but you have to be understand. Be a representation of exactly. how you interpret Torah. Especially like take take like, you know, being Jewish in New York, if you go out there and you're going clubbing and you're acting like a disgusting frat boy, guess what? People are going to think that Jews are disgusting frat boys. So maybe grow up a bit and maybe make sure that you, in the way you present yourself, is not a shame to our people. Mm. Um, and that just comes with being it's part a lot of, of pressure. It's, it's a, a lot, lot of pressure. It's a lot of it's, pressure. It's what you have to do. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's at least like what I do is every interaction I try to have with someone I want it to be genuine and I want mm-hmm. it to be positive. Mm-hmm. Not in the way where I'm being and like- a representation oh, of your values as a Jew. Exactly. Yeah. You know. And it's so interesting. Yeah. One of the most effective ways I found with leftist spaces about talking about anti-Semitism is just making sure people understand the way Jewish history intertwines with other histories of oppression. You know, for instance, the Inquisition. Um, a lot of people don't realize that that is how the Spanish crown bought the boat that sent Columbus to America. Oh my gosh. And speaking of the Inquisition on TikTok, 
of all places. People in my comments were denying the Inquisition. I've seen Holocaust denial. I've never seen Inquisition denial. Yeah. What? Oh yeah, the anti-Semitism, it just, it morphs every generation. Oh! But like, oh. The, so I don't know, for the Goyim who are watching, the Spanish Inquisition was when they basically uh, labeled Jews as heretics because Jews don't accept Jesus Christ because he didn't do everything that the Torah said he should have done. Um, so Christians labeled Jews as heretics for not believing in Jesus and were throwing them down on spikes and repossessing their houses. And when they repossessed their houses, the Spanish crown suddenly was very, very rich and sent Columbus to America. Who might have been Jewish, but we are unsure. But he um, wasn't Jewish. Uh, there's people who say he is. There's people who say he was That wasn't. sounds like a fucking conspiracy theory. It's just Honestly. like, I'm sorry, the one genocider of the Americas and we just, he, he's Jewish. That just, that just strikes me as just like lizard people stuff. Yeah. I love it when people back read Judaism into other people. Um, like when like they'll look back and they're like, and did you know he was Jewish? And it's like, no, I didn't. <laughs> like, because he's, is that a thing? You know what I, is that I a thing? I just feel like people retrospectively do that. It's just like, it's just the cherry on top of every conspiracy yeah. theory is Jews. Well, that also, um, if you want to take a zoom out, you see this with like every group. Like it's funny to see when people claim people and when people don't, right? Like for example, being Jews, we love claiming Adam Sandler. We're like, oh, and Adam Sandler is a Jew. He's a, he's a big Jew and it's great. But then like there's horrible Jews out there too. And then like, we don't claim them, right? And it's more like, we're not all responsible for each other, but we are in a way. So how about live your life as a good moral person? Don't be a dick, don't be an asshole, and know that people are gonna read your Judaism into it. So for the sake of the people, right? For the, and the for Jewish the identity, the yeah. It's Jewish identity. so unfortunate. It's so, yeah. like, I, I think of anti-Semitism as, you know, if any form of oppression or any form of discrimination went on for 5,000 years, you know, people forget, like, let's talk about Daniel in the lion's den, like in the Bible, you know, in the Bible, if you if you grew up in the church like I did, you're just like, and Daniel was thrown in a lion's den and then God saved him. That is a story of anti-Semitic discrimination yeah. because they were, they were worshiping, uh, you know, Hashem instead of the Babylonian gods. Mm -hmm. And so they got thrown into a pit. That is the story of the Jewish people over and over and over well, again. My favorite story, I have two favorite stories. There's Purim and then there's Hanukkah. And you know, there are two Jewish holidays that people talk about. Uh, Purim, I guess is less known than Hanukkah. Some people call it like the Jewish Halloween because we dress up. But what was happening there was um, the soft anti-Semitism that you see happening, I think in modern countries mm. now, um, so I'll explain Hanukkah first and then I want to go to Purim. So Hanukkah, you all know the Hanukkah story, right? You guys know that we light menorahs, we play with dreidels, we eat donuts, right? What does that actually mean? Where does it actually come from? What was happening, um, was that we were in, um, you know, it was, the, the Jews were existing and the Romans were like, no. Or I think like, <laughs> the Romans were like, yeah. no. It was, it was, I'm pretty sure it was the Greeks. That's anyway. just so much history in one sentence. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, no, no, we're not going to have this. It's Jews just so exist. much history with that So sentence. they pretty much outlawed um, all Judaism, starting with like, you know, circumcision, keeping a Jewish calendar. That way you don't know when the Jewish holidays are. And they started making it like all of this, uh, you know, anti-Semitism where mm. it's like, you can't be Jewish openly. Mm. You could be, you couldn't be Jewish at all. And they said like, okay, well that's where the dreidel comes from. It's supposed to say like, oh, we're not being Jewish here. When the Greeks would pass by, it was the Greeks, not the Romans. When the Greeks would pass by, they'd say, are you learning Torah in this cave? And they'd say, no, we are playing with our dreidels. And that's what the dreidel tradition is. Wow. But what are the Hanukkah candles? The Hanukkah candles are the antithesis of that. The mitzvah of Hanukkah, what you see are people lighting the menorah. By the way, a mitzvah is like a commandment. A commandment. It's like a good thing to do. Sorry. That's what it means. Tell the goyim, sorry. Yeah. Mitzvah is like a good thing from God to good do. Good thing from God to do. So the the mitzvah, the, the commandment, the essence of Hanukkah is to light a menorah, right? Mm -hmm. You see like Christmas trees and then you see like the menorah for Jewish representation. 
The menorah, you have to put on your windowsill. And what it's supposed to be is publicizing the miracle, saying, look, like publicizing our Judaism, saying we had to hide our Judaism. Let me publicize it. Jewish pride is the way to fight hatred. Mm. Now let's look at Purim. Purim was during the Persian empire. And what was happening is that Jews were out there being Jews and the Persians were like, mm. No. There was, <laughs> there was one horrible Persian named Haman, right? And he decides boo! that he hates Jews. Boo. Whenever you hear his name, you have to boo. boo. So Haman decides that he doesn't like Jews because a Jew didn't bow to him once. And he says, I'm going to choose a date to kill all the Jews. Haman was like the right man of the king. Boo. boo. <laughs> and the king, as kings do, says, I want a wife. So wrangle up all the women in the country and I will pick the most beautiful one to be one of my concubines. And he finds Esther, who is a Jewish woman. Esther, whose uncle was the leader of the Jewish community, says, dude, like they chose me as a wife. I can't say no because they'll kill me. So I'm going to go and be his wife. And he says, hi, dear Judaism, Esther. And you know what she became? The first Jewish diplomat. Why? Because she ends up marrying the king. She hides her Judaism. The king falls in love with her and she sits down and says, okay, well, do you love me? And he says, yes. He says, okay, well, there's a man who's trying to kill my family. And the king says, what do you mean? Like, we have to protect your family at all costs. And yeah. she says, well, surprise, surprise, I'm actually a Jew and Haman's trying to kill all the Jews. And that's the king was like, boo. The king was like, we don't want that. We don't want to kill all of the Jews. And then suddenly it was flipped over, right? So it's like every single Jewish holiday, every single Jewish experience, you see us doing all these cute things like lighting menorahs and dressing up and like all those fun things. But every single Jewish holiday is literally, we're alive to kill us. And we did not die. Every Every Jewish Jewish holiday holiday is we are not dead. And all of them are different iterations of anti-Semitism. So now I look at modern day America, modern day France, modern day everything. It's just repeating itself. It's just repeating itself. it's an impression that just went on for 5,000 exactly. years. And it's taken, an, an, if that kept happening, it would take a life of its own. And it does. Mm. And that's why it has a structural resonance. That's yeah. why it has a structural implementation yep. because it just kept repeating itself for so long. Yeah. yeah. I, I, generation after generation, anti-Semitism transforms. We have this in With all the same of our structures, holidays. new words. Same structures, new words. Yeah. Same structures, new words. And one day it's because, you know, Jews didn't accept Jesus. One day it's because Jews control the banks. And one yeah. day it's because Jews are this, whatever you hate in the world, Jews did it. And now you have to hate Jews. When really it's reading hatred into a group mm. because we are so few. We've been mm. the greatest scapegoat of history. Yeah. It's I really mean, ridiculous. You see, you see it also when you also, when you dig into anti-Semitism and exactly kind of the ways that it's, manifested i think you see it mirrored in the ways that governments treat other minorities so for instance you know trump in this country with the muslim ban it wasn't a muslim ban it was just a couple countries and the other Mm -hmm. ones that he was like buddies with were like suddenly free scott like to come into the country um you see that repeated that scapegoating that like here you know in, in america you know it's right now it's the muslim community with this particular uh set of laws you just have a small group of people who are just literally existing here that all of this malignment is being attributed to. Yeah. All of this malignment is being attributed to on a legislative level. Yeah. You see that mirrored so many times of just like governments not doing their jobs and instead of fixing anything structural, it's just like, ah, look at the people who are too few to defend themselves. Ba-ba! You know? Yeah, and it's it's you see this time and time, every government appeals to fear because fear is a very easy thing to flame. It's a very, it's, it's a, a very, very easy thing to flame. Innate sense. And, yeah. you know, going back to my lawsuit, I, I want to talk about, you know, Islamophobia, right? Islamophobia yeah. is horrible, running rampant, 
but there's also a deficit in the law when it comes to it. Mm. So if you take back my lawsuit, right? Like my lawsuit. Yeah, you title talked about six, this at the party when I the did. angels sang. Yes. Ah, <laughs> um, so the way that the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act was laid out, um, again, discrimination in academic institutions, yeah. was it only protected race, ethnicity, and nationality. Mm. Those three categories, not religion. So hijabi women have to take the brunt of Islamophobia. Exactly. And it's always hijabi women on and the front lines And it means that if yeah. a hijabi woman is harassed, for, for, being, her, for her hijab, for her hijab, which is all the time, which is all the time, constant. She has to make the case it was because of her religion, nationality, and ethnicity. So, what if she, let's say, converted to Islam, right? So she can't say it was her nationality. What if she is white passing? She can't say it's her ethnicity or her race, right? It's one of these crazy things where you can get away with Islamophobia because of semantics. Mm. It's really, really ridiculous that there was this deficit in the law. So my lawsuit might have been about anti-Semitism, but it was a giant step forward for all religious minority groups that are being like, you know, mm. discriminated against on college campuses. And college campuses are, you know, formative years. It's a time to form create your experience. And it's a shame that religious people, Jewish people, and I know Muslim people who have done this too, start to mute down their identities because they just want to fit in. That's mm. what a formative year is, right? Yeah. And I did that with my queerness. Uh, yeah that yeah. we always say don't check your identities at the door hey yeah. don't check your identities at the door yeah I, I again it's it's a horrible horrible experience at least now the one the one thing i say like you know, not that i could die happy because i have so much work to do but like at least when it comes to my lawsuit it started it the made headway for that it yeah. made headway right people of religious minorities are now protected on the basis of their religion they don't have to jump through hoops the way we did being like oh well it's a peoplehood you could just say anti-Semitism. You could just say Islamophobia. And that yeah. is a good thing. It's a good thing that we're starting to recognize groups that have been marginalized and they don't have to jump through hoops in order to be protected by the law. Mm. It's, yeah. that's, uh, that's, you know, I'll get off my soapbox, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I also- be on your soapbox. We're on a podcast, oh, it's fine. I love soapboxes. You know, I actually like, uh, it's funny because we say all these terms and I, I love talking about idioms in English because my mom, again, Spanish speaking, she was born oh, in Mexico. Oh, what's a Spanish idiom? Um, I, I don't know specifically for soapbox, but I had to explain to my mom, she goes, why do they have a box of soap? I'm like, no, no, no. Like back in the day, people would go to the town square, they'd take their soap box where they had soap, they'd put, flip it upside down, stand on it, and they would rant about things. She goes, oh, that makes sense. And my sister tells, um, you know, you, you know the, the idiom, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Okay, so it means like, don't, don't like scrutinize your gifts, right? It's, it's okay. a gift, right? So um, my mom didn't know that ex exact expression. So she goes, do not look at the teeth of the horse that you got as a gift. And I'm like, okay, sure. I if, love that. She's really so. trying. She's, she's really trying. It's cute. She can't say turning in their grave. She says rolling on the ground. She goes, he would be rolling on the ground. And I'm like laughing, like raffle? Having a seizure? Like, <laughs> yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's funny to hear how idioms don't carry over. I also recently learned the meaning of can't have your cake and eat it too. And I realized that a lot of Americans don't know the meaning. So if you don't know the meaning of you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Cause I was like, well, isn't that the whole point of having a cake to eat it? Why yeah. can't you have both? And my mom explained to me, cause she had to learn this, that it's like little kids, you know, like when they eat their chocolate and then they cry because they don't have their chocolate anymore. So now I know what it means. Oh. Yeah. Most people say, oh, after I explain that. So it means like you can't have it. Oh also my God. It. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm, I'm explaining idioms, which I, I don't remember how I got into this, but bottom line, American idioms are crazy, but yeah. Soapbox, I'll get off my soapbox for a second, just because um, when it comes to religious liberties on college campuses, I think it's the minority group that's being left behind. And I think that religious people who also fall into protected categories yeah. like race, nationality, and ethnicity yeah. shouldn't have to use that as a crutch. Mm. They should be able to say the word, this was Islamophobic or this was anti-Semitic. Mm. 
without having to rely on something else mm. to protect them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that goes that. for, that goes for a lot of different, you know, religious minorities. Cause if you're Hindu, like mm -hmm. it's not necessarily ethnic, you know, it's not necessarily national if yeah. you've been living in the U S yeah. So for instance, I had, uh, a friend in Alaska who is a Buddhist and obviously I told you like in this community, it's very Republican kind of people. Um, and this is like one of the first like dharmic religious people that I'd ever interacted with. And he had Tibetan prayer flags outside mm -hmm. of his house and the neighbor came down and cut them and threw them on the ground. His like sacred flags, like, like Mark, like this is like a sacred thing. And again, it's specifically because it's not a Christian religion. Yeah. That's the, that's the experience of so many people across the religious spectrum is just like in this country, you are scapegoated as any religious minority because you're not a Christian. Yeah. And it's so strange. I remember being in the UK. I used to have a joke about how my brother had to come out as an atheist. Oh, Ooh, God forbid. <laughs> and it was so funny because like in other countries, they're like, what really, is that really a thing? I was just like, yes, my mom was sobbing. My mom was sobbing. I think now she's kind of accepted that both of us are moving away from the church and she like, like you could go to church if you want, but she's like chilled out a lot. But um, it really, it really is this default setting and there's just, yeah. everybody's too scared to take it on. Like, especially like, you know, Trump, <laughs> Mr. Uh, what is it? What is it? What, what, what book of the Bible did he mispronounce? I can't remember. I don't remember either, but I remember this happening. I remember he like mispronounced a book of the Bible and I'm just like, this man has like had the worst script writers imaginable because you literally, I think there might be one out atheist in Congress and maybe really? a couple Hindus, maybe, maybe. Maybe because it's like you will not get elected in this country if you cannot appeal to this really, really toxic adherence to Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's like nobody talks about it. So I'm, gl I'm glad you're here. I think, uh, I think that's a great place to call the podcast of thank you so much for coming, Adela. Thank I you. have been Chelsea and she has been Adela and we have all been resensitizing. Thank you so much.